my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Today, I am joined by Reverend Don Abram, founder of Pride in the Pews, quote, a grassroots nationwide campaign aimed at amplifying the voices and leadership of Black LGBTQ plus people of faith, end quote. Launching Pride in the Pews in 2020, Reverend Abram has encouraged discussions about homophobia and religion in general and Black religious communities in particular. Speaking with Chicago Tribune, ABC 7 Chicago, Christian Science Monitor, and Religion News Service. In prepping for my interview with Reverend Abram, I discovered that he uses his intellect, personal experience, and his humor to share his message of love and acceptance of Black LGBTQ plus persons within their religious communities. I look forward to learning more about Don, finding the pews, and the ways in which he finds solace and acceptance of himself. Hello and welcome. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled and elated to be here with you. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, thank you for joining. And you're in Chicago. I am. I'm in Chicago enjoying the last few days of warmer weather that we have before uh, everything starts to take a turn. It sounds similar to here in Sweden. I know Chicago's known for its cold, but does it have an actual summer? We do. And that's the beautiful thing about Chicago. I tell folks all the time, we have all the seasons. We have every single season. And so our wardrobes are fire because uh-huh. we get to experience all types of fashion and wardrobe wear. So really grateful for the times that we do have warmer weather. It's usually only about three months, okay, but it can get really hot and you're able to enjoy the beach and, you know, we're right on the lakefront. So the city really comes alive during the summer months. You put it in a way I hadn't thought of. Your wardrobe's on fire because I'm from Arizona where you get cold, but nothing like, you know, a place like Chicago. But when I first visited San Francisco as an adult and it was a lot chillier than L.A. where I was living for a long time, I was like, oh, this is cute. I get to wear like cute sweaters and jackets and stuff. (laughs) Right, right. You see the diversity. I have to admit, I know nothing about Sweden. And so what's the weather like in Sweden? I don't know if it's as cold as Chicago, but it's got, you know, four distinct seasons. I've been here so far through all of them. I returned here in the end of June. So this is my first time going through the middle to the end of summer, and then I'll be here until the end of September. I'm loving it here. I first started visiting here back in 2015, actually through a Black woman. I used to, we didn't work together, but we worked with the same company. She grew up here, and when I was going to Denmark, she said, I have to come to Sweden. And so I came here, and I was like, yes, this is a place I can live. But my role right now is that I'm a digital nomad. I'm a freelance graphic designer and writer and podcaster. So I can come in and come out, but you can only stay so long as an American in most European countries. Wow, that's incredible. I just want to let you know how jealous I am that (laughs) you are traveling the world. I hope to be doing the same in the coming years. Uh, But Pride in the Pews keeps me quite busy, so travel can be hard these days. Okay, well, that's a good thing that Pride in the Pews is keeping you busy. So speaking of busy, how's your week been? 
Oh my goodness. My week has been phenomenal. Here in Chicago, the LGBTQ plus community is uh, really grieving the loss of three Black LGBTQ plus men who were killed. And Pride in the Pews has been holding space alongside other LGBTQ plus organizations in the city for folks to grieve and to mourn and heal, but also really inviting us to think about long-term sustainable solutions to create safer spaces for Black LGBTQ plus folk and and undoubtedly faith-based spaces uh, and spirituality plays a really important and critical role in the sort of life of LGBTQ plus folk. So I have been uh, really grateful for the ways that community has shown up after this tragedy and the weight of responsibility that I believe the church has to, to remedy and address and hold space for these issues is really acute right now. Were these recent tragedies? Yes, they were. Uh, so it took place just outside of a nightclub here in Chicago. One of the oldest Black gay bars in the country, if not the oldest. And so it really is a sacred site for LGBTQ plus folk, and as you might imagine, just stunning. So these three murders happened all at the same time? Yes, all at the same time through intentional sort of hit and run. Three folks perished and one was critically wounded. He's now back on his feet, uh, but of course the other three uh, have passed on. Thank you for sharing that. I wasn't aware of that, but also to hear that with what you do with Pride and the Pews and being a Black gay man, that you are stepping up to the plate. Of course, we don't want these type of tragedies to exist, but that you're creating safe spaces for people to come and to grieve and, and to use spirituality to work through this. For me, I see a direct through line and connection to the work that I'm doing. What we know, um, and this has been empirically proven, is that when people grow up, particularly in faith-based environments that do not affirm who they are, they have higher rates of things like suicide and depression and social isolation, drug use, et cetera. And those sorts of outcomes are directly related to the theology that's being preached in the pulpit. And so while we don't know what the motivation of the perpetrator was, what we are aware is that the Black LGBTQ plus community disproportionately suffers from a lack of critical resources that allow them to thrive and ultimately produce further harm in our community. Remedying those things, I think, are really, really the responsibility of the church and those who purport to be followers of Jesus. This is a hypothetical question, or maybe not that, but more of a question of if a person who is Black LGBTQ plus is known to be part of a religious community or church, if something like this happens, do you know or are you aware of these communities coming together to talk about this? This is a great question. And what we have seen more often than not is that these communities don't come together around these issues. One thing that is coming to mind immediately is, of course, what we are experiencing is the highest rate of violence against Black trans women ever. Oftentimes, those uh, women are not honored in Black churches and Black faith-based spaces. They're often misgendered. Uh, and in many cases, the truth and fullness of who they are is not really respected in the space. That's heartbreaking for me because I recognize that 
in many ways, we often weren't showing up in life. And I think one of the worst things you can do is not show up in death, too. But that often happens in the Black church. Uh, the same is true for queer or gay men. Their sexuality is often erased, ignored, rendered invisible, and even in some cases inconsequential to their life. And so once again, we see the church engaging in real violence as it relates to that person's legacy. That's not all churches, of course. Uh, there are some churches that are affirming. There are some churches that acknowledge uh, the expansiveness of gender and sexuality within the four walls of the church, but they are certainly rare. Gratitude for organizations like yours, which, uh, speaking of, can you tell us about Fighting the Fuse? I'd love to. Now you'll have to stop me. <laughs> I don't want to go on too long. But Pride in the Pews is a grassroots nationwide organization bridging the gap between the Black church and the LGBTQ plus community. We are ultimately doing this in service of producing a more just and equitable world. Uh, so we are asking ourselves, how can Black churches show up for the Black LGBTQ plus community, both within and outside of the Black church? So we equip churches with the frameworks, language, toolkits, and resources to be able to create more affirming spaces, really moving congregations from non-affirming to advocating dispositions and inviting Black faith leaders, both LGBTQ plus and allies, to begin to advocate for the LGBTQ plus community in the public square. Uh, so we are conducting church trainings across the country. Uh, we are hosting public conversations to demystify the topic of gender and sexuality in the Black church, but also to provide real-life case studies and models from which those who are interested in uh, creating more affirming spaces for LGBTQ plus folk can learn. So does this come about through you reaching out to uh, particular churches, or does it come from also them reaching out to you, knowing about Pride and Abuse. So the vast majority of churches that we have been in conversation with have been a direct result of Pride and Abuse initiating those conversations. We were able to gain a considerable amount of press with the Chicago Tribune and Fox 32 and a number of other outlets, and that certainly has helped uh, to spread the word and till the ground, so to speak, for those sorts of conversations. But really, it is grassroots. I underscore that so much because, as you may know, the Black church, even sort of non-institutional groups and organizations can be difficult to connect with because it's all relational, right? And so if you don't have pre-existing relationships, it can be difficult to break in. Uh, and so Pride in the Pews has really had to roll up its sleeves and hit the virtual pavement to connect with pastors who care about this issue and really want to lift up their voice on behalf of the community. What prompted your desire to start the organization Pride in the Pews? Thank you for that question. And it really goes back to my days as a young child on the south side of Chicago. So I was born and raised in this hand-clapping, toe-tapping Black church right down the street from my childhood home. And my Jamaican Patois-speaking grandmother would drag me to church every single Sunday. And Eric, I would think of all sorts of excuses as to why I couldn't go, including not being able to find matching socks, or I forgot my white gloves so I wouldn't be able to usher that day, or any other uh, excuse that was top of mind, all of which failed. 
at some point, I can't tell you exactly when, I began to find home in the Black church. It was a place where I felt valued, I felt seen, and I knew exactly where I fit. And it was the church that told me I had promise and I had gifting that would impact the world. I began preaching at the age of 14. Mm. I began preaching across the city of Chicago and eventually across the country as folks were just really excited about this young man who was on fire for God. And so at 16, I'm being flown out for three-day youth revivals because folks really believed that there was a calling on my life. At the same time, I began to explore my sexuality. What I knew was that I could not embody the truth of my queerness and my calling at the same time. Because if I did, I would not only lose my community, but I would lose the thing I cared about most at that time. And that was my ministry. Mm -hmm. And so for so long, I didn't embody those two things publicly. I lived two distinct and separate lives, or at least so I thought. It wasn't until I arrived at Harvard Divinity School where I was really able to unpack what I call toxic theologies, theologies rooted in the othering of people and reconstructed a theology that spoke to the fullness of who I am. Although I was free and I experienced the liberation that comes with a knowing of God's love and of historical knowledge of the biblical text, I asked myself, what about my grandma? What about the churches that raised and reared me? What about the folk who gave me my faith? Are they not too entitled to these sorts of conversations that invite them into a more expansive uh, and expanded understanding of the divine? And so that weighed on me. I didn't quite know what to do with that. Shortly after I graduated, the George Floyd protests erupted. I was out in the streets like everyone else protesting, crying out for justice. And I found myself frustrated by the lack of presence of the Black church and the silence of the Black church. Around George Floyd. Around George Floyd. Not only around the issue of justice, but also around the issue of LGBTQ plus violence, or more specifically violence directed toward the LGBTQ plus community. And so we were screaming the name of Breonna Taylor and screaming the name of, of George Floyd, but we weren't screaming the name of Tony McDade, for example, a Black trans man who was killed. We weren't screaming the name of the Black trans women, many of whom perished uh, as a result of not only state-sanctioned violence, but in some cases, interpersonal violence done by members in our own communities. Yeah. And so that really prompted me to, to really write an article. Uh, and so I wrote an article expressing my frustrations, but also inviting the church to reimagine its relationship with the LGBTQ plus community. Shortly after that, a colleague of mine from Harvard, this is how God works. I name this all the time. This is just a God thing. And it's precisely why I know I've been called to do this work. Um, a colleague of mine from Harvard said, Don, I'm so moved by your vision and by the article you wrote. I know we haven't known each other all that long since you graduated from HDS. I want to give you $50,000 to do something about it. Wow. And so he wrote a check. And from that check, Pride in the Pews emerged. Oh, what a blessing. You're like James Baldwin and several other people who were called to ministry at a very young age. Just what limited history I know of the LGBTQ plus community and our connection to spirituality, do you think that's a coincidence? No. <laughs> I think it's divine. Often when there were moments in my life where 
I would experience gratitude for the ways in which God was showing up at a particular moment or particular time or even particular way, my grandmother would say, that's divine providence. The ways in which LGBTQ plus folk are connected to the divine and showcases the multiplicity of the divine's embodiment in us, in humanity, I believe that that is divine providence. It is no secret that God dwells and resides with those who are on the margins. Scripture teaches that over and over and over again. When we find Jesus, we find Jesus with the outcast. We find Jesus with the widow. We find Jesus with the lame man. We find Jesus with the woman with the issue of blood. What all of these individuals have in common is that society has marked them and othered them and decided that they are not worthy of God's love, God's grace, or God's compassion. And what we see over and over and over again, riddled throughout scripture, is Jesus undoing and subverting those hierarchies and saying that even though you have proclaimed that God's presence and God's compassion should not be extended, I am telling you not only should it be extended to those whom you have othered, but I'm also telling you that there is something uniquely that they have to teach you, not only about how we relate with one another, but even how we relate to God. Mm -hmm. And so that connection for me is not unintentional. It is in fact, divine. And I believe that as a result, there is something, pardon me, something that the intersecting identities embodied in our experience has to teach the world. I like what you said about the toxicity in Christianity or how it's been interpreted in a way to negate so many of our life experiences. I just really like that term, the toxic rhetoric that we hear a lot in connection to Christianity and this exclusivity, it seems in some ways. Yes. You mentioned about you were preaching at a very young age and you were also, in general, discovering your sexuality as a young gay man. But were you fully conscious of the fact that you were suppressing that awareness of things? I certainly didn't use that language or even have that concept, right, Mm -hmm. or or construct. And so I'll say that it's something I, I really like to note and emphasize in the work that I do. Because people often believe that when church boys, church girls, church folk find their queerness, there's this notion and idea that they find it outside of the church. Mm. They find it in liberal colleges and universities. They find it in secular divinity schools or seminaries. They find it in metropolitan centers at gay bars or clubs. But I often like to name that the manifestation of my queerness first realized itself in the church. What do you mean? I found the seedlings of my queerness at the choir stand. I found the seedlings of my queerness in church Sunday school. That's where I encountered a young man whom I was in close relationship and conversation with because we were really the only two guys who consistently went to church every Sunday. And at some point, and I can't even pinpoint when, we gave one another permission to explore our bodies together. And in doing so, that was my entry into queerness. And I didn't name it. I didn't have language for it. 
I wasn't even sure how we knew to find one another, but we did, and we found one another in the church. And so I like to point out the fact that I fundamentally believe that we found queerness in the Black church because it was there well before we arrived. What would it look like for us to actually reconceptualize the church as queerness, as a queer space, fundamentally? And so as I began to reflect on my introduction to my queerness, I recognized that it was found in the church. But here's the other thing. I hadn't thought about the shame and sort of ridicule that came with queerness in the Black church. I knew it existed. I knew it was preached. I knew it was something that was looked down upon. But in those moments where I would be with this young man in a Sunday school or in a classroom or in the church van, exploring one another's bodies, opening up the fullness of who I am, I didn't embody that shame. I didn't embody that homophobia. We simply expressed divine liberation and freedom through the exploration of our bodies unencumbered by the toxic theology that would berate us when we entered into that sanctuary. And so within queerness, I found freedom. Within queerness, I found liberation. I found room to challenge my conception and understanding of the divine. And so even though, to use your language, perhaps suppressed my sexuality, I didn't do it in service of, or I should say, as a direct result of the oppression or internalized homophobia that comes from toxic theologies. Even though the sanctuary was the place of incarceration, was the place of rigidity and restriction, queerness as expressed through my sexuality was the place where I was able to actually break the box open of who I was supposed to be. Thank you for sharing that. I definitely see a movie in that. It's quite beautiful how you described it, and especially too around how you were able to slough off the shame that so many people would have encouraged you to take on. You bring up something to this common knowledge that we know that there's a lot of us in the church, in the choir, and in other positions of power in administration. Have you had opportunities to talk to those who actively or publicly preach homophobic rhetoric? Yes. <laughs> you know, to be quite frank and candid, that was my dad for a number of years. Okay. My dad is incredible. He's funny and engaging and thoughtful. And he was homophobic. As a Baptist, Southern Baptist preacher who grew up in Louisiana and Mississippi and migrated to Chicago later in his life, he certainly maintained homophobic and transphobic interpretations of scripture. And so when I began to embrace my sexuality and my calling, I was really, I would say, invited to have courageous conversations with my dad about the ways in which he has really weaponized scripture against LGBTQ plus folks. And those conversations started off very slow and deeply uncomfortable. But increasingly, as I shared my heart and my experiences with my dad, he began to slowly shift. And I believe that I needed to have that conversation with my dad. I didn't know it at the time, 
But I needed to have that conversation with my dad because it informed the work that I do today. Mm-hmm. It informed the sorts of conversations I have with mainstream Black pastors, right, who are preaching orthodoxy and theologies that don't affirm LGBTQ plus folks. These are conversations that I often have in private or in clusters and groups of familiarity and friendships that they have cultivated. I simply hold space for them to ask questions, for them to explore their curiosity, and more importantly, for them to be educated Mm -hmm. on the issue of LGBTQ plus experiences. That has informed the curriculum that we produce that has informed the approach that we take to building relationship with churches, because ultimately we're interested in being in conversation with those who are on the periphery of affirmation. Mm -hmm. Pride in the pews is not interested in preaching to the choir. We are not interested in galvanizing those who are already on board. We want to be in conversation with those who are on the periphery those who may not have the right language, those who may not be in community with LGBTQ plus orgs or issues, those who may not know where to start or where to get information. Pride in the Pews want to be conversation partners with them as they work to get it right. But identifying those congregations, identifying those pastors can be hard because they aren't known to the public. They aren't already engaged. They don't always have the big stages or the fancy churches but they do impact the lives of LGBTQ plus folk on a regular and consistent basis. And how do I know that? Because the vast majority of black churches are non-affirming. And empirical studies let us know that the vast majority of black LGBTQ plus folk attend what? Non-affirming churches. Mm -hmm. So if we want to make a dent on the issue of LGBTQ plus inclusion in the black church, We must be in conversation with pastors and preachers who actively preach homophobic and transphobic rhetoric. And at this point, I name that that is not everyone's calling. Some folk have been called to create churches for and by us. Some folk have been called to tend to the religious trauma impacted and inflicted by the churches that don't affirm us. Mm -hmm. And some of us have been called to go back have been called to go back to the places that have harmed us and that have hurt us and proclaim the gospel and the good news that there is another way. You can turn from your wicked ways, but you must be willing to acknowledge your fault and to acknowledge the harm that has been done. And when we are able to do that, when we are able to confess our faults, It is in that moment, I believe, a pathway opens up for reconciled and renewed relationship. You are a spiritual warrior. That's no question about that. I just think it takes a lot of bravery in general to do what you're doing. How do you arm yourself to deal with the emotional parts of it? Not necessarily worried about physical safety, but how do you arm yourself with dealing with the emotional negativity that may come at you? There are two responses that I have to that. One is community, really surrounding myself with community who loves me, affirms me, and pours into me. That's been just critically important. And in carrying out the work of Pride in the Pews, I've been privileged to be in community with Black LGBTQ plus Christians 
who are cheering us on in really powerful and transformative ways. Being connected and staying connected with Black LGBTQ plus Christians as I'm carrying out this work has been critically important to my own sanity and well-being, but also making sure that I'm maintaining my own relationship and connection to and with the divine. That means going to church. Uh, that means listening to gospel music, but that also means just finding joy in my life. That means going to the places that feed my spirit, listening to sermons, narratives, stories, music that feed my spirit. Those are all ways that I connect with the divine and fortify myself against homophobic and queerphobic attacks against my right to exist. Mm, a lot of love in that. The impact of how love and community and relationship with God can create this fortress. Undoubtedly. And it has. The Clark sisters sing that song, I Can Go to the Rock, the rock of my salvation. I appreciate that. It's that old school stuff that I lean on. It's that old school stuff that really imbues me with the power to be able to carry out the work, right? Like when my grandmother talks about Jesus being a strong tower, (laughs) when my grandma talks about Jesus being a leaning post, (laughs) when she talks about being able to find refuge in God, that's the stuff that fuels me. That's the stuff that covers me. That's the stuff that allows me to be resilient in the work that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so even as I'm working to create more affirming spaces in the Black church, I'm not trying to change the church. I'm not trying to convert the church. I'm simply trying to bring the best out of the church. And I do that by lifting up the traditions, the prophetic tradition of naming harm, the prophetic tradition of speaking truth to power, the prophetic tradition of bringing about a better world that is more inclusive and more just and more equitable. That is the best of the Black church. I'm simply trying to get the church to remember who it always was. Mm, I just heard, or just really fully hit me that we are a pastor. Listen to what you talk. In your March 2022 YouTube interview with Samson McCormick, the comedian Samson McCormick, You brought up the notion of respectable sexual politics within the Black religious community. Can you tell us about what that means? Yes, I can. So, you know, respectability politics is this notion and idea that essentially, and this is very boiled down, but Evelyn Higginbotham is the scholar who proposed this sort of framework and concept, and she was particularly rooting it in her analysis of Black women in Black Baptist spaces. But respectability politics essentially argues and suggests that if you talk a certain way, if you walk a certain way, if you dress a certain way, if you live a particular lifestyle, particularly that which mirrors white middle-class values and ways of moving through the world, then that makes you more respectable. So when we think about the Black church and even the movement, civil rights movement of the Black church, respectability politic had been at the center of it, right? It's the reason why the SCLC decided to rally behind Rosa Parks instead of Claudette Colvin. It's the reason why we chose a leader like Dr. Martin Luther King over and above a minister who didn't have the trappings or success or education of someone like King. But it's also the reason why we elevate figures and individuals who embody traditional and or heteronormative ways of moving through the world. 
And so as I think about conservative theology, as I think about the ways in which orthodoxy contributes to this notion and idea that there is a preferred way of being that's straight, Mm -hmm. that is cisgender, that is middle class, that is formally educated. Like when we produce this archetype, what that also means is we inherently other those who do not fit into this archetype. And so the other means queerness. The other means womanness. The other means transness. The other means poor. And so as I think about this archetype of respectability, I acknowledge and name that respectability has always been in service of whiteness. It has always been in service of rendering ourselves respectable to garner the influence, platform, and power that comes with one's proximity to whiteness. And so as I argue, that is fundamentally anti-Black, and it is fundamentally anti-LGBTQ+. Because within that framework, there is no room for queerness. Within that framework, there is no room for trans-identified folk. There is no room for gender non-conforming folk. Because that archetype fundamentally goes against whiteness. And when I say whiteness, I don't mean white people. I want to be very clear about that. When I talk about whiteness, I talk about the construct of whiteness that is imbued with particular values, particular manifestations, and again, ways of being. I really do believe that the theology that is preached around LGBTQ plus identity in non-affirming spaces, the roots and legacy and genealogy of that, I believe is, is rooted in the desire to appease whiteness. These last three years, I've spent most of the time here between Sweden and the UK. And one of the things that's become very clear to me is we're so much more like Black and white, those social constructs, especially in the US, than we realize. That's one of the gifts, I think, of traveling, especially as a Black American, is to find out, like, oh, mm. even with myself, to sit sometimes within my own internal dialogue and say, oh, how did I get to this frame of thinking? I think you're absolutely right. And this is where the methodology of Pride in the Pews really comes up for me when you name that. One of the things that we are intentionally trying to do is build bridges. I have decided to dedicate my life to the Black church because I'm interested in building bridges. Pride in the Pews has decided to focus specifically on those pastors who are on the periphery of affirmation because we're interested in building bridges. We recognize and fundamentally believe that our humanity inherently binds us. Our humanity inherently connects us. That my destiny and my future and the truth of God showing up in the world is connected to my brother, to my sister, to God's beloved. Extending that invitation is simply part of my calling as a Christian. Extending that invitation is what the ministry of reconciliation looks like. And so I do believe that we can build relationships across lines of theological difference. And even though you may not change your mind, even though you may not subvert your theology, I believe that there are ways that we can meet each other at the shared place of our humanity and make the world a little bit better. Mm. But I want to name that building bridges does not equate to compromising one's integrity. 
Building bridges does not mean being silent and or silent on issues that are too polarizing or too divisive. In the same way that I am inviting you to embody the truth of who you are, you must extend that same courtesy to me, calling you to a place where you acknowledge the truth and legitimacy of my humanity. You are helping me to soften my criticisms <laughs> of certain individuals and Black religious communities. So I thank you for that. Mm. To wind down, can you share briefly about the Can I Get a Witness project that you talked about during your interview with ABC7 Chicago back in March this year? Yes, I certainly can. So when Pride in the Pews launched shortly after the George Floyd protests, we decided to start a project called Can I Get a Witness? And if you know anything about the Black church, when a Black pastor, particularly in the Baptist tradition, is preaching a sermon and really emphasizing the point that they worked hard on, they will share it and then they'll say, can I get a witness? And what the pastor or preacher is doing in that moment is simply asking those who are listening to bear witness to the truth of what they're saying. And I fundamentally believe that LGBTQ plus Christians are really asking the Black church, can I get a witness? Will you bear witness to my plight? Will you bear witness to my promise? Will you bear witness to my potential? And so with that, I wanted to collect 66 Black LGBTQ plus Christian stories so that we might be able to find the solutions to the seemingly intractable problem of homophobia and transphobia and othering at large in the Black church. And we decided to collect 66 because that's the number of books in the Bible. And I want to name that the stories of Black LGBTQ plus Christians are sacred. And much like the word of God, they have something to teach us. And so we collected 66 stories, 25 states were represented, and folk from the ages of 19 and 69 uh, shared their story with us. And because we believe and took seriously that these stories had something to teach us, we decided to put our money where our mouth was. And we hired qualitative researchers who took a deep dive into those stories. And we were able to produce methodologies and frameworks and even curricula that guides the work that Pride in the Pews does today. Fundamentally, when you see Pride in the Pews, you see more than just Don's story, more than just the history and legacy of James Baldwin and Polly Murray and Ruby Sales. You also see the stories and lived experiences of those 66 individuals, along with so many who have shared their story along the way. Is there a place where we can see these or find them? Or are they written down? Right now, they are solely within the possession of Pride in the Pews. And those stories are shared out really through our curriculum. We are, as I mentioned, traveling across the country, working with churches as they work on their LGBTQ plus inclusion. And the quite literal transcript of those stories are embedded in the curriculum. Congregations and churches are wrestling with them and reading them as sacred texts, much like we did, to see what they have to teach us. So my hope is we will be able to secure funding at some point to be able to make these stories more widely available and to concretize them for posterity. Wow, I look forward to that. <laughs> many, many thanks for joining me on this platform. Any final thoughts or insights? The one thing that comes to mind as 
I reflect on all that we've shared, the work of Pride of the Pews in relation to it, is that this is long-term work. It does not happen overnight, and it does not happen without the cultivation of new allies, without a constant and renewed invitation to those whom we perceive as other, we will not be able to galvanize or build a movement, faith-based Black movement, around LGBTQ plus inclusion effectively or sustainably. And so as we think about LGBTQ plus inclusion in the Black church, I want to invite those listening to think about how you may be able to lift where you stand. What does it mean to have that difficult conversation with grandma? What does it mean to have that difficult conversation with dad or with sister or with brother? I am not suggesting that you put yourself in harm's way. I am, however, inviting you to be curious about those moments where you might be able to push, that you might be able to have courageous conversations across lines of difference and demonstrate to those who may not have the skills or the tools to do it themselves, how you might make it happen. None of what you do in service of that goal is in vain. I felt the power and lift where you stand. Mm-hmm. I know you participate with your videos on Instagram. I love those. <laughs> I definitely recommend everyone to check them out. There's humor in them. And underneath the humor is a lot of truth and a lot of love. But where can we find you online? Yes, you can find us at Pride in the Pews on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook. And you can also find us at www.prideinthepews.com. And there you'll be able to sign up for our newsletter or even donate and really recommend uh, churches to us that you think we should be in conversation with or pastors you think might be able to join our movement. So if you're listening and you know a Black church or a Black pastor who could benefit from being part of the Pride in the Pews movement, uh, don't hesitate to shoot us an email or a DM or share our work with them as we are eager, eager to expand the family. Thank you so much for this conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it and so excited to be connected with you and to continue to bear witness to the work that you're doing out in the world. I want to say quickly, I uh, knew about you from before because I follow Samson's YouTube channel, but I decided to reach out to you because I interviewed Z Sage, a rapper in Chicago. Yes. And she mentioned your name. And I was like, oh, when you talked about it's meant to be, I was like, okay, she mentioned that. All right, I need to reach out to him. <laughs> Yes, yes. No, I'm so glad you did. Yes. Z was actually an intern here at Pride in the Pews. I see. That's how she got connected to the work. And then Samson, oh my gosh, he's just incredible. I love his humor, just audaciousness in in his comedy. (laughs) He's certainly a friend of Pride in the Pews, has been supportive from the very beginning. And I'm certainly grateful for the ways that he's trailblazing and opening up doors for Black gay comedians. Very much so. All right, I hope you like my aunt and do five goodbyes. You know, that's what they say Black folks say when they try to get off, but they don't want to make it seem like it's them. I'm going to let you go. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you so much, Eric. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Same here. Same here. Take care. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.